Hello, welcome to the Olympic Podcast. I'm Sonali Silva. It's great to be with you. This month, the results of the second medical training survey were released revealing that doctors in training continue to be affected by excessive hours, unpaid overtime and unacceptable levels of bullying and harassment. My guest today is Chair of AMA's Council of Doctors in Training, Dr. Hash Abdeen. In this episode, we talk about what needs to change within the profession to stamp out the culture of bullying and harassment. We also talk about how COVID has affected trainees, and we look at alternative models of trainee assessment that could open up bottlenecks that currently leave many junior doctors stuck in pre-vocational and unaccredited training placements. Hash, welcome. Thanks so much for joining us today. Now, this is the second year the surveys have been run. There was a strong response rate with more than 21,000 doctors in training returning responses, so that provides some pretty robust national data. It's clear that thousands of doctors want their voices to count here. Now, I just want to go through some of the survey stats for our listeners. So, one in five junior doctors reported personally experiencing bullying, harassment or discrimination in their workplace. A further 15% have witnessed it. About half reported that senior medical staff were responsible and for many it was their own supervisor. 66% of trainees said that they did not report the incident they experienced, while 78% did not report the incident they had witnessed. And across the board, those figures are worse for junior Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander doctors who reported much higher levels of the behaviour. Hash, this is a profession that requires so much of those who pursue it. What's it like seeing these numbers consistently come up in surveys like this? Um, Of course, it's horrifying and disappointing, but sadly also not unexpected. And I think for doctors in training and medical students also, we know, and I think even for consultants, we know the culture of bullying and harassment in medicine is endemic. Um, it's been going for years and years, and there's lots of great programs out there, including RACS's um, Operating Respect Program, and there's quite a few other programs around the, different con- around the country in terms of bullying and harassment reporting tools, such as the Ethos tool as well that's used in some hospitals and health services. Um, but obviously, we're not doing a good enough job. I mean, the data is clear. Um, if you think about it, that's one in three of our trainees in the whole of the country who are experiencing bullying and harassment or witnessing it. Um, and even more so concerning is that, um, as you mentioned, the, the statistics that people are not reporting it. Um, and even those who have reported it are, are about only half are aware that it's actually been followed up. So we obviously have a fault in the system and obviously every hospital and every health service and every college has a zero policy bullying I mean, zero policy on bullying and harassment, um, but obviously it's not filtering through to real life action. And that's where I think we need to really take a look at ourselves as a profession and figure out what we can do better. And so I guess for the listeners as well, I mean, the perpetrators, majority are us as supervisors and clinicians. And so we really need to look at that culture and how we're training our trainees and whether it's a culture of, I think, hierarchy that's endemic in medicine and then probably leads to you know previous ways of teaching in a kind of more uh, I guess aggressive manner Um, and whether we're looking at teaching and training in a more I guess um, constructive way rather than in a way that obviously leads to this kind of bullying and harassment culture. Um, Overall I think you know what we do need to work towards is working together as the profession. Um, This is colleges, government, hospitals and health services and doctors in training and medical students working together to find out 
reporting systems that kind of empower those who are victims to, to speak up about it, but also trust the system in itself and allow, um, I guess, you know, natural justice if there's need that needs to be, uh, uh, I guess, addressed as well. And so we're looking at programs within the AMA and obviously within ASMOF around programs such as the Ethos program, which I mentioned, which is anonymous bullying and harassment um, reporting system. However, there's obviously issues with anonymity and obviously vexatious complaints. And so we're looking at how we try and build this in um, because currently it's against quite a few of the state awards. So I think there's um, some nuances in there, but I think this is where we need to head in terms of really putting out a tangible tool that doctors in training, medical students and other clinicians as well um, who are experiencing this in the Australian health system. Hash, how is it possible that endemic bullying persists in medicine in 2021 despite a Senate inquiry, viral social media campaigns, doctor education, incident reporting and, and other initiatives to improve awareness and improve workplace culture? I think there is some sense of lack of insight, which is what we're talking about. And I do agree, some bullies probably don't understand that they are bullying and that probably comes from the culture of medicine that is hierarchical, as I mentioned. So there's been always the nature where the consultant is at the top of the rung and really there's that culture of not speaking out against them, um, even if they, you know, perhaps are making a judgment call that may not be completely correct or if they're treating somebody not exactly in the right way. It's very much to the point where we try and um, not speak out against them. And so that culture needs to change to similar industries that we look at in terms of the airline industry, for example. We always see there's always um, a good way of speaking up against, you know, your senior if something's going wrong. And I think we do well in the patient safety point of view of speaking up. We don't really do well in speaking up for each other in terms of a bullying and harassment point of view or if you see something going wrong with regards to incivility and, you know, how we treat our, our colleagues and other patients as well. Yeah, and on that, I mean, more and more we're seeing social media play a role in speaking up about toxic workplace cultures in Australia and around the world. Various industries have been forced to address the practices that allow systemic bullying and harassment because of viral social media campaigns that share personal stories. And the medical profession is not immune. I mean, what's the role of social media in terms of calling out this kind of behaviour within the profession? Yeah, so I think obviously social media can work as a double-edged sword. And I think a really good story and a personal story can really touch the souls of, you know, hundreds of thousands of people, both within the medical community and the general community as well. And I think even the general community, speaking of that, probably doesn't realise how big a bullying and harassment culture we have within medicine and really how that potentially has the effect to, uh, I guess, impact patient safety and care overall. If you're bullied and harassed, you're not going to be, you know, thinking the best when you're doing that treatment. Um, but I mean, going back to your comment on social media, I think there is a, definitely a role for people to share their stories, as I mentioned, because stories are powerful. But it's obviously doing that in a way that doesn't expose, you know, patient details, for example, but also the details of the other person, because I think everyone has a right to privacy. Um, from an AMA perspective, I mean, the campaigns that we'll be looking at are similar to the campaigns that um, we looked at with Overtime, for example, with having key stakeholders talking about, um, you know, I claimed Overtime as a junior doctor and, you know, it's okay to claim Overtime. And the same thing with bullying and harassment. I mean, I think a lot, if you think about one in three are being bullied and harassed, there's going to be lots of stories out there that we can pull out that are going to keep people anonymous enough in terms of the, the complainants and the um I guess, you know, also the, the, the perpetrators really, um, but doing that in a professional way um, to make sure that the identities are remain safe, because I don't think that um, 
orbliest, stabliest for the rest of their life. I think people can, you know, gain that insight that we talked about before and make changes. And I don't think it's un- I think I don't think it's fair to taint someone's career for the rest of their life or, um, because of maybe a couple of incidences that were, they weren't aware of. Now, the survey also found that almost half of junior doctors considered their workload heavy or very heavy. Only 50% were paid for unrostered overtime always or most of the time, while 21% reported having to work unpaid overtime. Meanwhile, 22% reported that an undesirable workplace culture, including the amount of work expected of them, had a negative impact on their well-being. Hash, we know these are long-standing issues in medicine. It seems that it comes with the territory. You've said before that these practices are not only inefficient and unproductive, but puts patient care and doctor well-being at risk. Why have these practices been able to carry on? And what's been done to protect doctors here? What's the legal obligation? So as I mentioned, it comes down again to culture and the culture of claiming over time is or has been in the past quite, um, I guess, frowned upon um, from seniors. And I think juniors are very much in a vulnerable position where career progression is at the top of their mind in terms of moving forward in their careers. And if you're going to be speaking out about claiming overtime, it perhaps looks like, uh, I guess, you're, you're um, challenging the system perhaps too much. And I think too often doctors in training try to wear their fatigue and their amount of overtime as a badge of honour, which I think sometimes is, you know, obviously, I mean, it's a bad culture to really kind of compare with yourself and kind of talk about how fatigued you are. And I hear about how many nights I've done in a row and all these type of things. It's kind of a proud moment for some people, but really we should be frowning upon practices that allow doctors in training to become fatigued and burnt out and lead to poor well-being. And this is it. I mean, I guess over time really is leading to doctors in training being becoming fatigued. They have no time to spend at home resting, you know, with their families and their loved ones and balancing everything they do outside of work in terms of studying for exams and everything else that they do as well. And so it's such a, I guess the hours worked is such an issue there. But what, I mean, what it means for patient safety and care is that we're undoc- these are undocumented hours. We really don't know how much work is happening within the hospitals because it's all unrostered time. So we don't really know and appreciate the value of the demand of the system when we're not documenting this. And that's the other thing to talk about, that really we're under-resourcing public hospitals if we're not monitoring how much work is being done within them. And the same thing with other um, community settings as well. So we really need to, I guess realize as directors of hospitals and health services and state governments as well and departments of health realize that we're underfunding medicine if we're not able to pay people for their work that they're doing. And so what's being done at a higher systemic level to shift that culture? So there's been lots of campaigns from the various state and territory-based AMAs. As I mentioned at the start, there's the Resident Hospital Health Check or Hospital Health Check for various states, and it's a much more industrial survey compared to the medical training survey, but it shows very similar results with terms of overtime and, I guess, well-being issues as well. Um, I guess this is where it comes into a more state-based level when you're looking at comparing each hospital based on how much overtime doctors in training are doing and their poor fatigue levels. And that's really a big picture to those state governments and to those hospitals that they're doing the right, the wrong thing. And I think, again, what it talks about is awareness, having this kind of data source to really show that this is actually happening because I don't think a lot of hospitals do internal surveys about how much unrostered overtime doctors in training are doing. And Perhaps they don't want to know, I guess, as well. Um, but I think this is where that those surveys come in in terms of awareness. And then it goes down to, uh, I guess, legal, what you talked about. And you may, and some of your listeners may have learned as well about 
There's various class actions that are being set up in different states around over time. And the two biggest ones are Victoria and New South Wales, which are progressing from a legal perspective. And this is a class action on overtime and unclaimed overtime hours, which is millions of millions of dollars of doctors in training over time that's been looked at um, from a legal perspective. So I think hospitals are switching on and governments are switching on that this is a legal liability as well, having doctors in training, practicing medicine um, in unrostered hours um, with patients who are technically perhaps not even covered by indemnity. Hash, another big issue to come out of the survey is workforce planning. Now, uh, the survey revealed that only two out of five pre-vocational and unaccredited trainees reported having a training or professional development plan and that cohort was more likely than other trainees to report having to compete with other doctors just to be able to access teaching and development opportunities. I know the AMA is calling for all pre-vocational training places to be accredited. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, so I mean, what, what we're talking about is a group of doctors in training who don't have any kind of formal learning or training and really are, are the most vulnerable in terms of all the things we talked about earlier in this conversation. So the most, they're probably the most fatigued, they're probably working the most overtime, and they probably have really poor well-being. And we see that very much in both social media circumstances, but also mainstream media with other doctors who've called this practice out in the unaccredited registrar space and the pre-vocational space. Um, so we're really seeing this as a huge issue because these trainees are kind of, I guess, lost in lost in the lost tribe, which is what we call them. And um, they need protections in terms of what accreditation provides. So accreditation of the intern space and obviously the vocational training space provides those protections in terms of ensuring adequate education and training, but it also protects them in terms of, you know, their, I guess, uh, anything that kind of relates to that, which includes your well-being and your fatigue levels. And if you're having a whole expanding group of people, and because we know this group is the expanding group within the doctor and training population, just because of the workforce issues that we mentioned in terms of not having enough training positions, then we have this growing number of doctors in training who are basically being, you know, I guess, exploited in where they're going. And so we really need to move ahead with accrediting all places. Now, two states in particular have moved ahead. Um, with this. And so Western Australia is going ahead with accreditation of all pre-vocational places or in the near future. And they're looking at that very seriously. Um, New South Wales has done, they, their government has also done an investigation into this and has realised that, that it is an issue. Um, and so they're implementing measures to try and um, I guess, give some oversight to the pre-vocational space. While they're not moving towards, from my understanding, full accreditation, of all places, they are looking towards more protections of this space and um, with more planned education and training um, and also the protections in terms of workplace protections and over time protections for these trainees. Um, so we're really keen to support that in the other states as well and make sure this moves ahead as quick as possible because really um, it's a dangerous not only for the trainees but I think also for um, patients, as you mentioned, having fatigued doctors is not good for anyone. Hash, what's known about which specialties are affected most by this situation? Yeah, so the most, I guess the biggest specialty with the largest amount of unaccredited registrars is definitely the surgical specialty under RACS. And so that's a large, and that's, uh, I guess, a testament to what happens in their specialty in terms of they have a lot of trainees waiting to go to the programs for several years. Um, and that's probably the biggest group. The next probably is the physician trainees, um, those who are not passing on to the exam, but usually they're captured within some form of network. And so they are looked after by the college to some extent and the directors of physician educations. 
Um, but really, I think it's mainly the surgical um, trainees that are kind of suffering in that space. Um, and then you have obviously the non-specialist pre-vocational trainees, which are what well, well, in Queensland we call residents, but your house medical officers, your HMOs or your resident medical officers. And that's a growing group as well who don't really have any protections because they're not really in a registrar position or hospital training program, a vocational training program. And so that's a growing space as well that we need to look into. Hash, what struck me earlier was your description of doctors who are currently experiencing this as the lost tribe. How many doctors do we lose from the profession as a result of this bottleneck that essentially prevents people from progressing their careers? I, I mean, what we're finding is more and more people are leaving the medical profession um, and they're leaving the medical profession to do non-medical roles um, because they're finding the profession too competitive. Um, or that, you know, we're finding that they're not going into specialties of need and that's a big issue as well. And so, you know, we, we do need more, you know, of certain types of specialists within the hospital. We need more GPs and things like that. But people that are moving away from all of that because they're finding it difficult. Um, in terms of when you mentioned loss, I mean, the first thing that came to my head actually was unfortunately suicide, which is another big issue within medicine and um it speaks to all the problems that the medical training survey has highlighted, although it doesn't ask, you know, um, about suicide specifically, all the things that we're talking about in terms of poor training practices, bullying and harassment over time, fatigue and well-being lead to ultimately what we're seeing is a rising number of trainees taking their lives because of what the stressors they're going through. Um, and that data is um, very interesting. So there is a, pro a project that the AMA is doing along with um, one of the chief psychiatrists in Australia around the numbers of suicides of doctors in training and doctors in general. And we do see a lot of it happening. Um, and, it's, you know, you'd be frightened to say that it's happening almost monthly, if not more, um, around the country. That's an incredibly devastating number to hear and highlights the real urgency of acting now to address the issues that keep coming up across these surveys time and again. Last year too, junior doctors had to deal with disruptions to training as a result of COVID-19. What's been the impact of the pandemic on the sense of job security and stability for trainee doctors? Because I know a lot of exams have had to uh, be delayed um, and, you know, for many people, conversations in corridors or with colleagues in person about career opportunities um, have been missed in the last year. Yes, there's been lots of difficulties with workforce and the impacts on workforce um, for the doctor and training population. As you mentioned, job security and training progression has been a big issue, particularly because, as I mentioned, these one off stake, high stake barrier examinations, if they're not able to go ahead, which many of them haven't, and they're still being delayed, and you can't progress through your training. Um, but as you mentioned also, there's, it's all those subtle differences in terms of how we work as a workforce, in terms of being able to move interstate for a job or go for an interview interstate. Um, obviously now Zoom allows that um, to occur uh, much easier or video conferences. Um, which has been a great thing in itself. But I think also those corridor conversations, as you mentioned, are not there. So in terms of getting those referees and things moving forward has been difficult. Um, there's also been issues with border restrictions and, of course, you know, trainees having to move different, many of the national training programs are national and so you have to move different states and we're finding a lot of trainees having difficulty moving interstate and between states, but even between regional and remote when there's obviously restrictions that are going on. 
And obviously that was more acute at the start of the pandemic or in, towards the middle with the Victorian lockdown. And so we'd been at the, as the AMA advocating and talking to the government about exemptions for, for doctors to try and move as an essential workforce um, for training. Because if you can imagine a paediatric trainee who's trying to move from, you know, Victoria to rural northern New South Wales or whatnot, um, they're the only paediatric trainee there. And so they provide an essential service that's needed, but of course, of, you need to be careful in terms of border restrictions as well. And so we'll be really advocating with the government to allow exemptions. Um, the other thing that's concerning from a trainee perspective is actually our international fellows. A lot of trainees have gone overseas now to do fellowships overseas. And there's lots of actually international medical students as well who are stuck overseas. And this is the other advocacy that the AMA is doing. We're talking to the government about, I guess, increasing the number of specialists who will come back or fellows who are coming back to get jobs um, because there is a significant amount overseas still who are unable to get back. Hash, then what's been done to bridge that gap in training that COVID created over the last year, especially in an already overstretched training system? How can people catch up? So, of course, and it's not a surprise to anyone um, that there was lots of disruptions to training, um, whether you're an intern all the way up to a, a pre-fellow as well. You had very much disruption in your training and access to, to, to patients and access to training experiences was very much highlighted as poor or, I guess, disrupted in the survey. Um, what we're finding anecdotally, though, is that there's been quite a few rapid changes around assessment uh, assessments. And you mentioned earlier about high-stake one-off barrier examinations, which, you know, the AMA has been talking to the AMC and the various colleges about looking at, you know, whether one-off high-stake barrier examinations that we run once or twice a year is the, the ideal way of assessing doctors. And, I mean, we're asking them, some trainees, some of these exams, you, you sacrifice your life and everything you do for 12 months to try and get through. And there's obviously that chance of failure, which a lot of people fail. And it's quite devastating um, for a trainee to have to go through something like that. And I, I think that there are better ways to train our trainees and assess our trainees. And a lot of colleges are moving towards more work-based, competency-based, or what we call interest entrustable professional activities and so COVID again has made colleges and other assessors realize that having these type of one-off barrier examinations are not conducive to disruptions that COVID kind of produces or any other kind of a disruption that may come through and so it's kind of highlighted to people that we do need to move away from these type of examinations and assessments and move forward. Um, the other things that have been great, I think, in the COVID sphere is obviously access to patients via telehealth. And that's been a really interesting and also enlightening experience for, I think, a lot of trainees to be able to gain skills in telehealth and video health and, uh, as well. And so that's been a really good experience, I think, from a lot of trainees. Um, so that, like I said, I think there's been good things and bad things from a training perspective due to COVID. Now, doctors in specialist training also reported issues with exams, particularly alignment with college curriculum and the lack of transparency in costs associated with training as barriers for progression to fellowship. Hash, what's been done to address this? Um, so there's a project that we're running at the moment around costs of training and obviously having a look at the, how that contributes to your training experience. Now, there's quite a bit of variability between the colleges and even within the colleges, there's variability between some of the states where you, depending on what state you, you train, for example, in psychiatry might be more expensive in Melbourne compared to if you train in psychiatry in Brisbane. And it's kind of odd that that would ever happen. And we need to look at how that influences the diversity of every specialty. So obviously specialties where, you know, um, 
I mean, you're excluding people who probably come from people who are struggling in terms of financial security, if they've got, you know, dependents, if they've got dependent parents. I mean, people who have external, you know, financial influences won't be able to afford specialties that are much higher demanding in terms of training costs. And I understand, obviously, those specialties are usually higher end spending when you're a consultant, but it's very different when you're a trainee working those hours and trying to look after a young family and balance every job that you can. Um, but we really need to look into the fairness around this and how that works out and how that contributes to training. And if you look at training around the world, um, the UK's training costs are significantly lower than the training costs in Australia. And we need to look at why those things are occurring. The other thing that is interesting is that our colleges are probably doing more than training um, than the other colleges around the world are doing. And so there's a lot of colleges who are doing quite a bit of government advocacy and policy work, which is not really core business in my in the AMA's opinion, but at the same time, we're understanding that, you know, it's nice to have multiple players in the advocacy sphere, but really from a trainee perspective, you're paying for your training primarily, and that's where you want your fees to go. Um, so I think, you know, we need to look into what that means for trainees and I guess how that impacts their training overall and their quality of training. Hash, so what are the key priorities now for the AMA in terms of addressing the issues that have been raised by this survey? Yes, so I think the priorities for us is addressing definitely bullying and harassment. As we mentioned, it's a huge issue and it's, I think, a startling issue for many people. So that's probably our number one priority at this point. Next is the accreditation of all the pre-vocational spaces and the issues that are faced by these trainees and providing protections for them and going along the WA and New South Wales models as well. The next, of course, is definitely over time and I guess how that impacts well-being overall and combining those together as a big issue. Um, and the last, which I, we haven't really mentioned today, is around, um, I guess, related to bullying and harassment, but discrimination as well. And we're finding that the report from even last year talked about our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander trainees experiencing almost double the amount of discrimination than other trainees. And this is a key priority for both us as the AMA, but also the Australian Indigenous Doctors Association or AIDA in terms of growing the number of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander specialists. And this has been an issue for a long time in terms of trying to improve the amount of doctors who, or increase the number of doctors who are specialising from that, from the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander background um, to meet community needs, basically. I mean, at the moment, we just have such little numbers and we need to do better to be able to support them to get through these training programs. And if racial discrimination is one of those factors, then we really need to call it out for what it is and, and work together to address that. So overall, I mean, they're the key, key priorities for us in 2021. Um, as we mentioned, you know, I think these issues have been longstanding, but we hope that, you know, things like COVID have really shown us the way in terms of trying to progress issues like this and working together with all stakeholders. I'm confident that we can make real change. Hash, you mentioned discrimination just now and the stats from the survey on this are just so disheartening. Can you tell us more about what the survey picked up here? This is an issue. Um, I mean, a lot of us don't really have colleagues that are Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander doctors and that's, uh, I guess, a testament to itself about how poor we're doing in this space, about encouraging more and more medical students to come through from the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander background, but also supporting them throughout their specialist training because they do have different needs. And I think what the survey highlights is that, you know, there are specific issues that are going on in this population, and particularly around discrimination, which was the most stark thing for me to see that, you know, they're doubly likely to be discriminated against, whether that's from patients and other clinicians as well. 
Um, and so it's just, I guess it's a harrowing statistic to look at when you think that this is happening within our profession and we're doing this to each other. And I think that's the biggest thing and the message for everyone listening is that, you know, all it takes is for someone to speak out against a bad behaviour and to stand up for another colleague or for a trainee or for a medical student or for each other. Um, and then we really start to make those small, small changes that really lead to large cultural change. And that's what we need. We need to really... Um, I guess speak out against it, identify it as a problem and move forward as a, as a community. Dr Hash Abdeen, Chair of the AMA's Council of Doctors in Training there and from the Limbic Media, I'm Sonali Silva. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you'll join me on the next podcast. <laughs>